Page 68-69, that would be brilliant. Follow the story as we go. That's quite important because I might be about to tell you a bunch of lies. Every preacher might be about to tell you a bunch of lies and the only way you can be sure what I'm saying is true is if you just check out with God's word as we go that I'm not pulling the wool over your eyes. So that's what this is for. That's why we have Bibles in the room. That's why some bring their Bibles with them. Use the Bible to check this out. Because not all preachers tell you the truth. Am I one of them? Well, find out. Let's pray. Living God, we invite you, by your Holy Spirit, to be present in this room, to take this word, which is written at least... 3,000 years ago, and, and make it live. Show us what it's about and why we should spend time listening to this this morning. We pray that you, the living God, in person, may come and speak to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. While I was um, walking home from... Uh, Bethany Christian Centre in Houghton a few years ago up Gillis Lane, steep bank up towards the top of the hill where the uh, Cocktail pub is when I noticed the accident the accident was uh, just a little group of people and you'd tell it was serious because there were people just running backwards and forwards they didn't know what to do they ran off, stopped, came back ran off, stopped, came back there was a car just pulled off the road carelessly at the side of the road there was a a 15-year-old girl, motionless in the centre of the road. But the thing that drew my attention first was the woman by the side of the road who'd just gotten out of a car who was screaming her lungs out with despair. I've noticed over the years, and the emergency services people bear this out, that it's always the driver who makes most noise. The victim was silent. Shattered, motionless. And the driver, among many other emotions, was feeling, perhaps most deeply, the most acute human emotion of all. Not love, not hate, but regret. Searching for the rewind button of time and not being able to find it because there isn't one. Searching for the capacity to go back and remake the decision to go too quickly down that road at a time when the schools were coming out. She hit the girl, went straight over the top of her car, landed like a bundle of rags in the road behind. She's all right, by the way. And you can't go down Gillis Lane at that speed now. The council made sure of that. That's why we get those bumps in the road. Basically because drivers are stupid. I am. You are. We need the bumps in the road. Regret. It's the most tragic of human emotions. And that's what you get in Exodus chapter 12, verse 29 and 30. Remember that scene from that movie that uh, Beth showed us a little bit earlier on, The Prince of Egypt? At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. 
from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. Regret. Maybe mixed in with anger and frustration and grief and loss. Regret. If only we could find the rewind button on time, go back to the moment we made the wrong decision, make the right one, and then press the play button again. There is no rewind button. And that's why regret is one of the most tragic of human emotions. This did not happen by accident. And this did not happen because God is cruel or because God is capricious, or because God flies off the handle and gets angry for no good reason. It has taken God generations to get to this point. At least a hundred years, probably more, as the Egyptians increase the pressure on his people. As the Egyptians squeeze them into ghettos, then force them into slavery and then increase the oppressiveness of their slavery even more. Read the story of Exodus to this point. You get to this point. Not just one decision, but many decisions taken over time. Many opportunities to change. Many opportunities to repent. Many opportunities to put things right. Refused. And now, at the middle of Exodus chapter 12, verse 29 to 30, howling with regret, Because God has done what God said he would do. And it might strike you that this is a very sober thing to be thinking about on a Sunday morning, but it is. And it has to be. Because when we're talking about God, we're talking about the God who is full of love, full of mercy, full of compassion. And he needs to be because we are full of sin. And we make the wrong decisions. And we make them again and again and again and again. And we should not be surprised or outraged when God eventually, after generation after generation after generation, chooses to move in judgment. With God, this is the most terrifying thing of all, to discover that you should have believed, that you should have changed, that you should have turned, but to get to the moment where there can only be regret because his judgment is real. He meant what he said. It's awesome, it's terrifying, and it's true. And here's the thing. We live in a culture, we live in a generation that is highly intolerant to this idea. How can God dot, dot, dot? And the answer is very simple. We make him do it. We make him do it. We refuse to listen the first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time. We keep on making those stupid decisions that bring so much destruction, that allow so much toxic rubbish into our lives. We make him do it. Don't ever minimise this. We're often tempted to, as we celebrate God's grace, God's generosity, God's mercy, God's love, God's compassion... Indeed, God's amazing tolerance for the bonkers behaviour that the human race comes out with. But we'll ever minimise the fact that if we won't live God's way, God will one day 
move on us in judgment, just as he moved on the Egyptians in judgment all those years ago. God does not do this willingly. God does not do this gladly, but he does do it. And every time we remember the cross, every time we remember Jesus dying for us, Jesus didn't die for us only to set us a good example, though he did. He died on a cross for us to show us how Christians should live. Self-giving love. But that's only half the story. The other half is that he died for us, bearing, as that last song said, the wrath of God for us. Taking on himself what I deserve. So that now the offer is to anyone on the planet, from whatever race or whatever language or whatever background, trust him, trust this, and you are forgiven. You have new life. You escape God's judgment. God does not judge willingly or gladly. That's what the cross is about. That's the extent of his love for you. Dying in the person of his son on a Roman gibbet so that we can be forgiven. You can't turn back time. There is no rewind button on history, but there is a reset button in time when you trust him and you move on with new life. Now actually, this story here, the Passover story, is a moment in which history was reset for the people of Israel. And you catch that in chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month. The first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. Having taken into account the number of people there are, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. So there's a a beginning again in Israel's history. From now on, after this escape from Egypt, this will be for you year one, day zero. The whole of your clock is going to be reset by this example. And so it has been. For the three to 3,400, no one's quite sure, years since this happened. Every year, Israel has done what that video was about earlier on, that daft video about those guys. It was all about celebrating the Passover. Ever since then, the people of Israel have remembered the moment when their time was reset and when God took them out of slavery in Egypt. The story is told again and again. It's the founding story of Israel. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, as he celebrated that Passover meal with his friends, he used that event to explain his death. We'll come to that in a moment, but just for now, just thinking about this event in chapter 12, the first Passover that was, that was eaten in Egypt. Stripped for action, ready to run, carrying only what they needed, they ate this meal And then, when Pharaoh said they could go, they went. And they headed straight for the Red Sea. 
and for the salvation that God had promised them. Three things about this here. This was a day for the whole of the community, for the whole of time. That's verse 3 down to 4. Everybody was to be included. If people were too poor to, to, to kill a lamb to celebrate, they were to be brought into households where there was enough meat to go around. 3,000 years later, it still does. It's still celebrated. Here's the second thing. This is going to be a sign for you. That's verse 13 of chapter 12. The blood on the doorposts, remember, in the cartoon and in the description in chapter 12 here. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over, hence the word Passover, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So this blood... The dead lamb cuts two ways. It's a sign for me, I will pass over when I see the blood. You won't suffer this judgment, but it's a sign for you as well. It's a sign for you pointing to the fact that judgment is real. It's a sign for you pointing to the fact that when God moves in awesome, terrifying judgment... He always leaves a way of salvation. He always leaves a way of escape. He always makes it possible so that individuals can respond to him and escape the wrath to come. That's how judgment works. And do you know what? This is so good that even obedient Egyptians and members of other races outside of Israel, even they escaped what happened. Have a look at chapter 12, verses 37 and 38, just the right-hand side of the page at the bottom. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Verse 38, many other peoples, many other ethnic groups went up with them and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. Even obedient Egyptians escaped the plagues. God does not want to judge. He always leaves an exit, an exit, an exit in case of emergency. All you have to do is take it. All you have to do is go God's way. All you have to do is have the humility to do His thing and the wisdom to realize that your thing is probably going to kill you. Even believing Egyptians escaped the plagues. And here's the third thing. This Passover story works as a pattern in history. It's like a visual aid of how salvation works a visual aid of how God rescues people. And to see how that works, we're going to fast forward to the time of Jesus. And we're going to look at a moment in the life of Jesus when he uses this event to explain what he is about to do. Now in the New Testament there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. John's Gospel is full of little explanations of what the death of Jesus will mean. Matthew and Mark and Luke aren't. Instead, you have this climactic moment in Matthew and Mark and Luke where Jesus said, 
the Son of Man did not send me to be served by you, but to serve you and to give my life as a ransom for many. And in Matthew and Mark and Luke, as Jesus celebrates Passover with his friends, the night he's betrayed, the night before he's put on trial and executed, he uses the Passover to explain his death. We're going to look at Luke's account of that. and You'll find it in Luke chapter 22 in the Bibles that you've got uh, here. Chapter 22 of Luke is on page 1057 in the church Bibles. Chapter 22 of Luke's Gospel. And we're going to start to read in verse 14. Verse 14 of Luke 22. We fast forwarded almost, well, probably around about 1400 years. The story of the Passover has been celebrated for 1,400 years. Every year the same. It's become part of the ritual life of Israel. And the words are as familiar to you as the words of the national anthem or the words of stuff that you do regularly day by day. The ritual is ingrained into people's lives. You just know the way it works, what comes next, who does what. There's a proper little written down liturgy as to how this should work. So after all that time, we're coming into Luke chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so it goes on. It's been happening for 1400 years. We know the ritual, we know the words, we know the rules, the unleavened bread, the wine, the bitter herbs, the lamb. We do it with our families every year. The head of the family uh, presides over the ceremony and he always says the same thing. Jesus, as the head of his team of disciples, presides over the ceremony and they're expecting the same thing. This is the poor bread which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let all who are hungry come and and eat. Let all who are needy share in the hope of the Passover. That's what Jesus was supposed to say. That's what they say to this very day. Instead, Jesus says this, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's verse 19. You could have heard a pin drop. Because Jesus had just changed the most important thing in Jewish ritual worship. He just rewritten the script that Moses had written all those years before. Completely changed everything. And then as if to make things worse... He takes the cup and he says, verse 20, This is the new covenant in my blood, 
which is poured out for you. Remember the old covenant when Moses took you all to Mount Sinai and you all saw the law and you all signed up to the covenant? I will obey you, O Lord, and you'll bless me. If I disobey you, you will judge me. You agree with that? Yes, we do. Sign up. Fantastic. That's the old covenant. Jeremiah came along hundreds of years later and said, we've broken that covenant, but God's going to offer us a new covenant. And Jesus, this very evening, is saying, the deal starts now. This is the new covenant. This is the new relationship. Drink this in remembrance of me. It was an amazing moment. Here is, if I can call him that, trying to see through the eyes of people of the time, here is a nobody, a Galilean carpenter, shifting the whole weight of the thankfulness of God's people from the Passover to himself and particularly himself on the cross. This is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood, my death in nails on a cross for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's redefining the Passover. That that meal that was taken to save the Israelites and keep them going in their flight from physical slavery became the meal that reminds us of what God has done to keep us going in our flight from spiritual slavery. There are three things we're going to notice about this, just like we did for the Passover. Same three things. This is a moment that reset the clocks. Literally, it did. Human history is divided into two, A.D. and B.C. Um, By this moment, by this event. People today talk about B.C.E., before the common era I just think it's before the Christian era that's all if you have to use that at school this split time in two this made everything different and the moment you believe this for yourself the moment you receive this from your, for yourself not by earning it because you can't I cannot earn this Not by qualifying it, because you can't. You cannot earn this. But by just receiving it as a gift, the clock is reset in your life. You'll never find the rewind button to take you back 10 years or 20 years to avoid all those mistakes that you've made, all those cringy moments, all those terrible, terrible nights, all that painful stuff. You'll never find it. It doesn't exist. But on the cross, Christ reset the clock of our lives. And we start again, forgiven, on a new road that leads to freedom and not to slavery. That's the first thing. Here's the second. This is an event to share with the whole community. And we do. Christians of different traditions, different denominations, different backgrounds around the world are united by this. By taking bread and remembering Christ's body, by drinking wine and remembering the new covenant, remembering Jesus died for us. And at that moment, 
We're remembering him. We're refreshing our relationship with him. We're remembering our partnership and fellowship with Christians around the world. Paul would once write in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians, uh, if, you, if you eat and drink this bread without discerning the body and blood of, of the Lord, you're, you're wasting your time. You're misusing this. And Jesus, Paul did not mean um, the bread and the wine. He meant the body. He always talks about the people as the body. Never about bread and wine as body. If you don't realise that this joins you to everybody else in the room, Look around you. Look around you. Do it. Would you choose these as friends? But when you take that bread, you declare your unity to everybody in the room. When you drink that wine, you declare your mutual dependence on the blood of Christ with everybody in the room. Look around you. Nobody else does this, folks. Not in our culture. Only the blood of Jesus. Only the cross of Jesus does this. The people in this room were committed to everyone. And you're committed to us because of what Christ has done. It's an event to share with the whole community. And here's the third thing. It's a sign. And signs point to something. And this sign points to the way God saves from the slavery to sin to the freedom of God's children. Our last passage in the New Testament this time explains what that means. And that was the passage that Robbie read to us a little bit earlier on. You'll find it in Titus chapter 3. And in the Church Bibles it's page 1199. Titus 3 verse 3. This has got to be, personally, my favourite little passage in the New Testament. I'll tell you why. Because this passage tells my story. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, you can't earn it, but because of his mercy. It's his gift. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. That's my story in a few verses of the New Testament. And it is so deeply personal. That is one of my favourite passages in the Bible, probably the favourite passage that I have in the Bible. I'm in there. That's me. And I want to tell you that you're in there somewhere too. I wonder if you're in verse 3. At one time, foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, living in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. When you read these kind of passages in the New Testament, I very often hear people saying, do you know, that's over the top. No one's like that. 
We live in a nice world, a nice society among nice people. No one's like that. Paul's not being horrible. He's being honest. And this begins by taking an honest look at who we really, really are. We're slaves. We're slaves of money, driven to earn more and get more. We're slaves of sex, pornography and worse. We're slaves of reputation. What will other people think of us? And those three things and more jerk our strings and make us do much of what we do. We are not free. We are slaves. And we do hate, though we'd never admit it. And we are hated, even if you might not be quite sure who it is that hates you. This is the world in which we live. And sometimes I think it's a really interesting exercise just to go to a cafe, get a cup of coffee, sit next to a group of people who are having a conversation and eavesdrop at what they're talking about. Their desperate need for money, their preoccupation with sex, they call it relationships, but often it isn't their desperate concern for reputation. The people they hate. That's what gossiping is about. And you know that if they're talking that way about others, there are others talking that way about them who hate them. Verse 3 is where we start. Verse 3 is our Egypt. And you can leave this behind. Here's how. Have a look at verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared. This is the life of Jesus. This is who Jesus is. God's kindness, God's love, God's grace made visible. You know those old um, Star Trek uh, movies and episodes where they sort of beam down on a planet and, and suddenly you get in this strange distant, faraway world, these three or four spacemen just materialize, appearing. The kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, not by beaming down, but by being born at Bethlehem, by living a life among us, by being oppressed as we often are by dying on a cross, by rising from the dead. God's kindness and love made visible. That's why the Gospels are so important, by the way. That's why you need to read them more than we do, so that we can see again and again the kindness and love of God our Saviour made visible in the life of Jesus. Are you in verse 5? Let's have a look. He saved us. Not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is the moment in your life when you make the most vital decision of your life. The decision on which so much hangs, the decision that presents itself to you now. Am I going to receive the kindness and love of God our Saviour? Am I going to receive his offer of mercy? 
I receive it by believing it, by trusting it. I receive it by asking him to forgive me and helping me to live from now on under his lordship. That's called repentance. Turning away from my own way of living, putting myself under the lordship of the God who knows how life really works. And two things happen when you do that. One is rebirth. The clock resets in your life. It's day one, year zero, and you start again. That's amazing. You've got to be born again, the Bible says. And the second is the gift of the Holy Spirit. God himself comes and moves into your life. And he begins to change things from the inside out. First thing he does is probably have a good sweep round, get rid of some rubbish. Then he starts to give you a sense of God that you never had before. And then he starts to give you a sense that you never had before of the wonder of Jesus and the beauty of following him and the need to make more changes. And it just goes on. And it just goes on. And it just goes on. I'll never forget the moment I realized the Holy Spirit was active in my life, I'm not quite sure, I can't put a moment on the time I was converted, but some weeks later, I was walking across a golf course in South Wales, just outside of Swansea. And I thought to myself, good grief, everything's more vivid. Everything's more beautiful. The grass is greener. What's happened? Something has happened inside me that gave me a new set of eyes. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit of God that comes to you when you put your faith in Jesus. So you in verse 5, would you like to be? You can be today. You can be this morning. Are you in verse 6 or verse 7? If you're a Christian, you should be. Who poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. That's the Holy Spirit. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. There are two things that mark out a Christian. One is faith. Faith is looking back on Jesus and saying, I believe that. The second is hope. Hope is looking forward to a future with Jesus and saying, I'm working towards that. Faith and hope. Those two things. Is that you? Maybe it's all gone a little bit stale on you. And maybe today is the chance to refresh that. Hope means your future is secure. Hope means that everything is safe. Almost finished. One last thing. You've got to remember the lesson of Passover. The way of escape is clear. In this room, if there's an incident, there's there there and there. You can get out quickly. In the Passover, the way of escape was clear. Do what God's people are doing and paint the blood on your doorposts. That was then. This is now. Today, the way of escape is clear. Trust this Jesus. Give your life to him. Be reborn and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. But if we don't, then that awesome moment all those centuries ago, as the cry of regret goes out from Egypt, 
God's judgment is real. And we live in a world that is under God's judgment. And one day God will wipe this world out of existence and renew it. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. The home of righteousness. He invites you. This is the hope we talk about. He invites you to be part of that. Do it. Make this decision. Do this today. Choose him now. Let's pray. Just going to have a moment of quietness just to let some of this sink in. Musicians will come back on the stage and we're going to sing that song. Amazing love again. But just before we do that, what is God saying to you? What must you do about this?